Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original, lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Last spring, Debbie Flower and I discussed the viability of bagged worm castings. According to one study published in a peer-reviewed journal, bagged worm castings start losing their effectiveness after 60 days. But there are those who disagree with that study, calling it invalid. Today, we revisit our chat about bagged worm castings with Debbie Flower, and we add in an opposing viewpoint from longtime organic gardening advisor Steve Zion. We leave you to draw your own conclusions about the viability of bagged worm castings. Also, as timely as the decorations on your front porch in late October, we have a tasty recipe for curried pumpkin soup. The secret? adding in other winter squash varieties that you might be growing in your own garden. We're podcasting from Barking Dog Studios here in the beautiful Abutilon jungle in suburban purgatory. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred Podcast, and we're brought to you today by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. Let's go. We like to answer your garden questions here on the Garden Basics Podcast. You know how to get in touch with us. You can uh, leave a message at SpeakPipe, speakpipe.com slash Garden Basics. You don't incur any phone charges that way. And, of course, you can always call us and leave a question, 916-292-8964, 916-292-8964. couple of ways you can get some uh, text into us. If you go to gardenbasics.net, you can leave a question there. Maybe you have pictures you want to send along. That's always helpful. Well, then send your question and your pictures to me via email to fred at farmerfred.com. And again, uh, speakpipe.com slash Garden Basics, a great way to get your voice on the air here. Or go to GardenBasics.net and leave a question there. Debbie Flower is here to help us answer the questions. And and people love to get information from Debbie. You know, by the way, and it's trademarked now, she is America's favorite <laughs> retired college horticultural professor. Gee, thanks, Fred. <laughs> sure. Anyway. <laughs> And Eileen left us a message at speakpipe.com. And Debbie, it was a very intriguing message, wasn't it? It was. This is a good thought, a good thinking woman. All right. Here's Eileen. Hi, Farmer Fred. I have a question about worm castings. I've heard that worm castings are really kind of volatile and they only stay good for like 15 minutes after you harvest them out of your worm bin. But then I also see them being sold in bags at garden stores. So... What's the truth? I mean, it's probably not the worst thing to old, to add like old worm castings to your garden, but maybe it doesn't even hold a candle to what your backyard worm castings can do. Uh, help me out here. Thank you. Well, Eileen, you're right on several points there. <laughs> yes, she is. Yeah. But there's one that we, we will be emphasizing, too, is that uh, old worm castings may actually repel water. Right. Old worm castings don't have as much value as the new ones right out of the garden, as she mentioned. There was a, a study actually done in 2000, well, it was published in 2014 in the Journal of Applied Horticulture called The Effective Storage on Some Physical and Chemical Characteristics of Vermicast. 
So vermicast being the worm compostings. Being America's favorite retired college horticultural professor, you're probably familiar with the Journal of Applied Horticulture. Mm -hmm. Would you say that is a uh, reputable publication? Yes, it's a peer-reviewed publication, which means they get the article and they will send it out to peers, people who are similar to the people sending it in. So in general, these are professors or graduate students who are doing this study, and people will review it for different things. A statistician will review the article for making sure that the statistics were done correctly. Uh, In this case, probably a worm farmer or a worm researcher will read the article to make sure that the things said about worms and worm casting are legit. So it goes out to a number of people in the field who then make comments. And it has to pass this peer review before it will be published in the journal. To give you a short answer, Eileen, those bagged worm castings, according to this study, they're good for 60 days. Right. It talks about what's in them. Fresh worm castings have a lot of nitrogen in them, and a lot of nitrogen can be very good in the garden, or there can be too much, and it can be too hot and burn the plants. So you you get a lot of nitrogen, you get some iron, some zinc, some copper, phosphorus, potassium. Worm castings do contain organic matter, and they contain very broken down organic matter, which we call humus, which is pretty stable. It has some good characteristics uh, in the soil, and it one of those being that it, it has high what we call cation exchange capacity. It, it holds on to cations or positively charged ions, so nutrients that plants can use as well as holding on to water, and it lets them go when the plant needs it. All of that's good, and that the humus part of it will not change over time. But there are also live organisms in fresh uh, worm castings, and those don't survive forever. And they're good live organisms. And there's water, too. And there's water. Yes, it's moist. And that disappears. And that disappears. Right. Uh, Let me read the abstract from this study in the Journal of Applied Horticulture to give you an idea. In, In fairly simple English. So here we go. The study revealed that most of the characteristics of the castings were retained during the first 60 days of storage. Further, as storage was continued, the physical properties such as total and water-filled pore space were reduced by 11 and 40% respectively. The water-holding capacity of castings also reduced about 82% and exhibited high degree of water repellency, whereas the bulk density and particle density of castings increased twofold. These changes may impede the water availability, the oxygen diffusion, and plant root penetration in the field. The nitrogen loss of 49% was recorded due to intense ammonia volatilization. There was more than 75% loss in potassium and phosphorus content and a significant reduction in the concentration of minor and trace nutrients. These changes in the properties of castings reduce the beneficial impact of vermicast on plant growth. Well, that's pretty direct. It is. It is. And there are tables in this article of their results. The amount of time they looked at these worm castings were seven days every week, seven days, 14, 21. Then the table skips to 60 days, then 90 days, and then greater than 120. So it's not all that long. 120 is four months. That's right. And uh, what concerns me is the fact that if it gets too dry, 
it's going to repel water and it's going to make it tough, as that abstract mentioned, for plant roots to penetrate it. Right. So you don't you're not going to want to grow in 100 percent worm castings. Yeah. And if you do use it, you probably want to somehow uh, saturate it again, too, especially if it's older than 60 days. Yes. So that would be uh, putting it in a bucket, let's say, and, and mixing it with some warm water and using your hands. Well, that brings up an interesting thought. Uh, we just did a segment about compost tea. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you took those worm castings and put them in a five-gallon bucket along with an aquarium pump and basically put air back into the system yeah. and then used it, if that would help. Good question. Yeah, we don't know I'll the answer to No, that. we don't. We'd have to do the, the research. And again, you're looking at... After 60 days, after right. 60 days after harvest or 60 days of storage. I have talked to the makers of worm composting products. I have talked to retail outlets that carry them to get their point of view on this. The manufacturer says uh, we can't make it fast enough and get it out there fast enough. There's such high demand for it. And that's a good thing because that means that when a pallet of worm castings shows up at your favorite garden center, it's going to move quickly. And then you, the consumer, has to be the one to use it within a month or right. so. Right. But generally speaking, from the plant where it's made to the retailer, maybe just a few days. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. And depending on how many pallets of worm castings that garden center purchased, it may disappear within a week. It might take a month. And if it takes longer than two months... I think as a customer, what I would get in the habit of doing if you buy worm castings in bags is to ask them, when did this arrive? Mm-hmm. And if it's longer than 60 days, if they're telling the truth, then maybe do something else. Yeah, there are people who do it as their local small business. Right. Yeah, that's and a good point. So that's something to look into. You can get it. That was something I asked for for Mother's Day one year. And my husband found a local mm-hmm. uh, composter, and she had another job. And so she only harvested on certain days and he had to wait for those days and then drive over to her house and, and buy bags of, of vermicompost. I so knew, that was very fresh. I knew a guy in Gold who said, yeah, come on by. And if you shovel it, I'll give you 20% off. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah, it can be that fresh. It can and, be that fresh. And to apply it that fresh would be great. It would be because there are microbes, live organisms in the worm castings that are beneficial to the plants. And you would retain the most of those by, do it, by applying it fresh. So, Eileen, I guess... Uh, You're going to have to form a close alliance with your favorite garden center or nursery, and hopefully they will level with you about how long that packaged product. Hopefully they will know. (laughs) Hopefully. Yeah. And that's the other thing, too. Uh, I went around checking bags for dates, and I didn't see any dates. I saw barcodes. So maybe there are manufacturing dates embedded in the barcode. But how do you get access to that? And then where is the plant that it was made? Mm -hmm. Is it? On the East Coast, and so this sat in a truck for a week? I don't know. Yeah, there are worm casting factories, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, here in California, several of them. But I imagine uh, every area would have their own local. It seems to be a very localized industry, the bag soil amendment industry. Right. Seems to be very localized. Yeah, I agree. And worm castings, they're often associated with dairy farms because the manure is fed to the worms and the worms mm-hmm. turn it into vermicompost. I read another paper, another article where the thing that the, the worms were fed was paper. And so it, 
might be a recycling thing. I don't know exactly where this compost is being made or what they're being fed or the effect that that would have on the result. We'll have a link in today's show notes on this report from the Journal of Applied Horticulture on the effect of storage on some physical and chemical characteristics of vermicast. You can read it for yourself. At the very end are references that you can research for yourself on worm castings and everything that was in this report. Yeah, quite a number of them. It was very well researched. Yeah. Yeah. Another tact to take is we're not there right now at this time of year, but in your own compost pile or as you do on your vegetable beds when you put them to sleep in the fall, usually put leaves on them. Mm -hmm. And cultivate your own population of worms that will leave the worm castings right where you want them. Yeah, it's amazing how that works. I'm always amazed at when you start mulching soil with a good organic product like oak leaves or chipped and shredded tree parts. And a year later, you go and dig down. All of a sudden, all these worms were there that weren't there before. Yes, worms are incredible. I am not super well versed in in vermicomposting. I have done it a few times, and I've watched the demonstrations at the Ferroxort Center. But their population ebbs and flows depending on the food supply. Right. That makes sense. That's true of of many things that live in the soil. Right. And it's uh, one thing we learned about with compost tea is that you're wasting your money if you're applying compost tea to soil that doesn't have an active microbial life in it already. If it's dead. Yeah. Yeah, It needs some life first in order to get it to multiply. Mm -hmm. But as far as making your own worm castings, if you have a worm bin, well, that's a good place to start. But if you have any working knowledge of it, you know that it takes months to get maybe a couple of cups of worm castings. Yeah. It's For me, the, the part I liked the best was the leachate, the liquid that came out of it. And I would collect that. My worm bin was a tiered, mm-hmm. commercially made tiered one, and it they had a spigot for the liquid to come out the bottom. And I would dilute that and put it, uh, water my house plants, and they loved that stuff. And that's from your personal experience. That's my personal experience. It's not a peer-reviewed study because there are not. no peer-reviewed <laughs> studies on worm leachate. Uh-huh. And it's, uh, it's a mystery uh, until somebody studies it, uh, really, uh, how to apply it and where to apply it. But uh, just in hearing people who have worm castings, they will have worm leachate and what they do with it and the results that they see. Right. And, uh, yeah, worm leachate's easy to get. I mean, I, I'm, right. I'm filling up to, a gallon every week. You have of, to. And what do you do with it? Well, based on my own experience, <laughs> not on a peer-reviewed study, I am putting it around plants in the garden and around vegetable plants, not over the leaves, but mm-hmm. around the vegetables. Uh, are you diluting it? No, I'm not. That was my fear that when I got it was that it would be too hot, as I was talking about at the beginning, mm-hmm. about to have too much nitrogen in it or too many salts, which are uh, how, how plants can absorb nutrients. And when it's the right amount, it's great. But if it's too much, then it burns. The, the plants can burn the roots. So I was diluting it. I would think it would really depend on what you were feeding the worms. In yes, the worm that's bin. true. Garbage in, garbage out. That's true. I remember Jack LaLanne. Any of you remember Jack (laughs) LaLanne? TV exercise freak. Yes. And he had a white German shepherd. But he always used to say that the best fed person in your household is the garbage disposal. Mm. Because all that great stuff that people take out of vegetables before they boil it at the time back in the 50s and 60s. And that was popular. Yeah. went, Went down the drain. And that's the healthiest part 
of the food. So if your worms are eating healthy fruits and vegetables that you're discarding, you're going to have a very healthy bunch of worm castings. Right. I wonder about that other article I read where the worms are eating paper. Paper is very high in carbon, uh, has a little bit of nitrogen, but very high in carbon. And so uh, what are what are they going to get out of that? Uh, and I don't have the answer. Yeah, I, I don't know that either. There's a lot more to learn about there worm is, castings. There is. It's hopefully this was a 2014 article. I, don't, I haven't found much since. I, I wish people would do more research on it. There's a, if you're into this, go get your PhD and do some research. And if you're in industry, you can write a grant for it. Yes. If you're in the manufacturing business of soil amendments, I would, if I owned one of those companies, I'd pay for those studies. But then you'd be accused of biased results. <laughs> Unfortunately, many of the uh, studies done in horticulture and I assume other sciences as well are funded by industry because it takes money. It takes money to pay the students and the professors who work on it and they need supplies and time and it has to come from somewhere. We're all going to die. No. <laughs> <laughs> this article, there were some that I was reading where... That weren't quite as applicable, but they they were so into a certain product with a product name they used in the article. And that just turned me off. I didn't want to know about Mm -hmm. that product. I wanted to know about the worm castings in general. Right. Well, Eileen, uh, there you go. If you have the room to have a big worm farm, that would be the best way to get lots of worm castings quickly. It really comes back to what we've always talked about gardening, GIY, grow it yourself. Mm -hmm. That's the healthiest food you can get. And in this case, the healthiest soil amendment you Mm -hmm. can get. Mm -hmm. So hope that helps, Eileen. If you want, go to the show notes and download the link to effective storage on some physical and chemical characteristics of Vermicast. Debbie Flower, thanks for your help on this. Oh, it's a pleasure. You're welcome, friend. As we pointed out at the beginning of this episode, not everyone agrees with that study about the viability of worm castings. Coming up, we talk to someone who says that study needs a lot more work. It's Sacramento's organic advocate, Steve Zion. We'll hear from him and his views on bagged worm castings when we come back to the Garden Basics podcast. You've heard me talk about the benefits of Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric container. Smart Pots are sold around the world and are proudly made 100% right here in the USA. Smart Pots is the oldest and still the best of all the fabric plant containers that you might find. Many of the imitators are selling cheaply made fabric pots that fall apart quickly. Not Smart Pots. There are satisfied smart pot owners who have been using the same smart pots for over a decade, actually approaching 20 years. When you choose smart pot fabric containers, you know you'll be having a superior growing experience with the best product on the market. And your plants will appreciate smart pots too. Because of the 1 million microscopic holes in smart pots, your soil will have better drainage and the roots will be healthier. They won't be going round and round on the outside of the soil ball like you see in so many plastic pots. The air pruning qualities of smart pots creates more branching of the roots, filling more of the usable soil in the smart pot. Smart pots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value hardware stores nationwide. To find a store near you or to buy online, visit smartpots.com/fred. 
And don't forget that slash Fred part. On that page are details about how, for a limited time, you can get 10% off your Smart Pot order by using the coupon code FRED. Use it at checkout from the Smart Pot store. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information about the complete line of Smart Pots lightweight, colorful, award-winning fabric containers. And don't forget that special Farmer Fred 10% discount. Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. You heard Debbie and I discussing that study about the effect of storage on some physical and chemical characteristics of vermicast. It was a study done in India at the Center for Pollution Control and Environmental Engineering, and it was printed in a reputable journal, the Journal of Applied Horticulture, back in January of 2014. Uh, Let me read the abstract from that report for you, that study, a peer-reviewed study too, by the way, give you some of the basics here. It's widely acknowledged that vermicast has beneficial effects on plant growth, but little is known on how the manner and duration of storage affect the vermicast quality. In an attempt to cover this knowledge gap, we have carried out a study on changes in physical and chemical properties of vermicast as a function of aging when it's stored. The study revealed that most of the characteristics of the castings were retained during the first 60 days of storage. Further, as storage was continued, the physical properties such as total and water-filled pore space were reduced by 11 and 40 percent, respectively. The water-holding capacity of castings also reduced about 82 percent and exhibited high degrees of water repellency. Whereas the bulk density and particle density of castings increased twofold, and these changes, though, may impede the water availability, the oxygen diffusion, and plant root penetration in the field. The nitrogen loss of 49% was recorded due to intense ammonia volatilization. There was more than 75% loss in potassium and phosphorus content and a significant reduction in the concentration of minor and trace nutrients. These changes in the properties of castings reduced the beneficial impact of vermicast on plant growth. Some people have taken issue with that study. One of those persons is Sacramento Organic Advocate Steve Zion. And Steve, uh, I know I raised your dander after you heard that on the podcast about worm castings and their limited life. I would like your thoughts about that. I think their study about the bulk density and the water holding capacity and water repellency and nutrient loss is probably all up and above boards. But they utilized that information and, in my opinion, incorrectly concluded that these changes, and, and this is a quote, these, as you said, these changes in the properties of castings reduce the beneficial impact of vermicast on plant growth. And, you know, there are numerous problems with the study. First, they they assumed without any study that the issues that they found uh, with aged bagged worm castings when it's applied to the soil will affect the soil in the same way. They did not do any research, and therefore their conclusions, in my opinion, are invalid. You take worm castings that are dried and, and they've lost some of their nutrients and primarily if they've lost their bulk density and water holding capacity and they repel water, all of that can be changed and reverted back to close to the original conditions by simply adding m- more water. Years ago when I managed a local nursery, uh, peat moss was very, very popular. 
And we, when we sold a bag of peat moss, we told people, if you just use this as is, it's really dry. It's going to repel the water. It's not going to absorb water. What you have to do is poke a little hole in it and you have to, you know, take a hose and fill up the bag with water so it will absorb water. If you were to do that with the worm castings, bulk density would increase back to I suspect that the bulk density would increase back to normal. Certainly the water holding capacity would get close to being normal. The amount of water content that material holds uh, would increase close to back to normal. Uh, it would not repel water anymore. So when it's actually used in the soil, it's not going to have those kinds of influences. And they didn't study what this material is going to do uh, when it's added to the soil. That's, you know, so it really, in my opinion, invalidates the whole thing. They also, they only fed the worms neem leaves. And neem leaves does not create a healthy vermicompost. Um, you need to feed your worms a variety of different things to get good quality material. Also, neem is an insecticide. And there are some questions um, and to my knowledge, it has not been studied very well, if at all, what a diet of 100% neem will have on your composting worms because it's an insecticide. There is certainly possible a possibility that it could become toxic. It certainly isn't a healthy, well-balanced diet. They also, in the study, did not talk about how they stored the bags of compost? Was it in a bin where it got, you know, really, really hot in the summertime? Uh, was it in a shaded storage building where it stayed cool? The study talked about a significant loss of nutrients. It talked about 49% loss in nitrogen, 75% loss of phosphorus, and they really represented the uh, misrepresented the significance of this. Even though it's a large percentage of nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium that is lost, the actual amount is so small to be barely, barely significant. Typical nitrogen, phosphorus, and potash ratio, those three numbers that you find on the bag uh, for worm castings is 100. So if you lose half of your nitrogen, you're losing half of 1%. How significant is that? If you're losing 75% of your phosphorus, and you have pretty much 0% phosphorus and 0% potassium, and you lose 75% of that, 75% of nothing is nothing. It's not significant. It really doesn't mean anything. As far as the water repellency is concerned, like I mentioned earlier, you just leave it in the bag, fill it up with water, and uh, you're going to restore most of the physical characteristics. They also did not evaluate uh, the biology uh, in those bags and whether the storage is going to affect them. My guess is uh, that the, the majority of the, the biology would survive. Uh, they go in a dormant state. And I think Debbie talked about that in the previous show that discussed this issue. They would survive. And then once that material is re-moistened and the physical properties are restored, the biology would probably uh, start producing more of the nutrients again. A common problem with university research and a lot of the, the scientific research is that they don't really understand uh, much about soil health and how the soil actually functions with the biology and the fact that it's the biology that makes 
the soil function. It's not just nitrogen, phosphorus, and potash because they didn't evaluate the biology. The study was only done in the lab. It wasn't done in the field. We really don't know the effect of that material when it is actually used, whether having it stored is really going to be a problem. I agree that using just neem leaves was probably not a good idea, that you do want a variety of products if you are uh, raising worms for vermicasting, green waste preferably if you're growing uh, vegetables, uh, for example. So anyway, in this study, which was conducted at Pondicherry University in India, neem leaves were collected from the campus. The collected leaves were washed with water to remove adhering material and soaked for 48 hours in order to remove phenolic compounds and to make substrates softer and palatable to earthworms. Now, as far as their storage techniques, they talk about it in the report that they used rectangular wooden boxes as vermireactors. The reactors were filled from bottom up with successive layers of coarse sand and soil to a thickness of three and five centimeters, respectively. Neem leaves were added as feed with the earthworm species Eudrilus eugeniae. After two weeks, the vermicast was harvested. Uh, the fresh castings were analyzed immediately, while the rest were stored for different periods. Seven days, 14, 21, 60, 90, and 120 days. Those casts, worm castings, were stored in polyethylene bags. The plastic bags were filled with 500 grams of vermicasting, were stored at room temperature in order to imitate the general way of storage of vermicomposting in commercial sectors. Well, that's fine as far as indoor storage when you're manufacturing it. But once it leaves the manufacturing facility and goes to a retailer, I think these researchers gave retailers a break because some of them do store these bag products outside where the rate of decline may be a lot quicker. In fact, I was looking at worm casting bag labels, looking for any sort of advice as far as uh, how to store them or any precautions. And I checked, uh, went on Amazon, put in worm castings, and up popped about 20 different products. And I checked the labels of 12 of those 20 products. And only one of them had any warnings whatsoever. And it talked about this. This was on a bag of Eden's Best Organic Earthworm Castings. And at the bottom, it says, do not ingest or inhale. Keep bag closed and store in a cool, dry place. Well, thank you for that. But it, there's no manufacturing date on that. You know, if it's one thing that I wish manufacturers would do is to put either a use-by date or a manufacturing date clearly on the bag. Don't say, uh, go to the website for more information. No, I want to see it on the bag. I want to know how old the product is anytime yeah, I go I, buying I, I, I fully agree. I think um, especially with, with uh, your, your organic products, that are meant to contain a beneficial soil biology. I think it, there is a lifespan for the critters. And so it's, it's helpful to know that the older the material is, likely the less biology is going to be there. And so it, it, it's nice to know. We also need to do research on how long the soil biology survives in these various products, the fertilizers, the composts, the worm castings, but the problem with that is there's so many different kinds of biology and they're going to be studying it in a lab instead of out in the, in the nursery where the bags are stored. It's a difficult study, but having a date where it was at least manufactured 
uh, I think would be very, very helpful. Exactly. Switching gears a little bit here and talking about bagged soil products that contain mycorrhizae. At least uh, Espoma Organic Potting Mix says this about if you're going to buy a potting mix that says it contains uh, mycorrhizal fungi is uh, store in a cool, dry place out of the reach of children and pets. Keep bag closed to retain moisture. The mycorrhizae in this product are best used within five years of the production date coded on this bag. After that time, their numbers may no longer meet the minimum guarantees. Well, thank you for that, Espoma. At least with mycorrhizae, we're going in the right direction. Yeah, there, there are. I mean, there are certain, some companies that are trying that re- are realize that this is an issue and are trying to respond. Put a pretty little bow on this and talk about the benefits of, of using bagged worm castings. Um, worm castings, the, the report, the study that we were just talking about, assumed that the big benefit was the uh, improving the bulk density of the soil, the water holding capacity, the nutrient content. And in actuality, the, the real benefit of worm castings is the biology that it contains. When material goes through uh, the digestive system of a worm, uh, the material already has a lot of biology in it. And then the digestive system adds a lot more. And so you get huge amounts of beneficial soil biology, much more than you get in your stand, even your standard compost, which has a lot of beneficial soil biology. And then when you add that to the soil, that beneficial soil biology, the bacteria emit gooey substances that glue the sand, silt, and clay particles and pieces of organic matter together to form aggregates. The fungi and fungals have filaments that tie the sand, silt, and clay particles together to form aggregates. And when you get these aggregates, you get a diversity of pore spaces in size the size varies. You get small and medium-sized pore spaces that will hold the water. And then you also get large pore spaces, which is particularly important in the clay soil or compacted soil, because that allows the water to drain into the soil, through the soil. And then after a relatively short period of time out of those pore spaces, the water will drain out. So you get oxygen and air in your soil. And with those large pore spaces, the roots the soil biology, the worms, all the life in the soil can move around much easier. And so it's it's the worm castings providing not only organic material and organic matter, but the soil biology that really, really improves the quality of your soil and the soil's ability to grow plants. Yeah, just to put a little emphasis on what you said there, those larger aggregates, by creating those air spaces, does allow the roots to grow even more. And it's those roots that are absorbing the food that is helped along by all the uh, soil fungi and bacteria. Yeah, the, the soil fungi and bacteria, for the most part, make those nutrients available. And they make water available as well. We'll have a link to that study from the Journal of Applied Horticulture on vermicast storage. And uh, you can read it for yourself and come to your own conclusions. Uh, Either you make it yourself or you buy the worm castings. Adding worm castings, especially on a regular basis to your soil, is going to improve the soil biology, which means healthier plants, which means healthier food, which means a healthier you. And with worm castings, it's easy. All you have to do is add it on top. There's no need to mix it in the soil, but you want to top those castings uh, with like leaf mulch or or something else just to keep it from uh, drying out anymore. Steve Zion is Sacramento's organic advocate, knows a lot about organic gardening. Steve, thanks for your uh, help on this. 
It was fun as always, Fred. You want to start the backyard fruit and nut orchard of your dreams, but maybe you don't know where to begin. Or maybe you're currently growing fruit and nut trees and you've got a million questions, such as what are the tastiest fruits to grow? Where can I go to buy some of these delectable fruit and nut trees you've been reading about? And then how do you care for all of these trees, including planting, pruning, and harvesting? I've got one online stop in mind for you where all these questions you might have will get answered. It's DaveWilson.com. That's Dave Wilson Nursery, the nation's largest wholesaler of fruit and nut trees for the backyard garden. They have planting tips, taste test results, and links to nurseries in your area that carry Dave Wilson fruit trees. Click on the Home Garden tab at DaveWilson.com for all of these links, including a link to their years of informative videos about growing fruit and nut trees that they've posted on the Dave Wilson Nursery YouTube channel. Start the backyard orchard of your dreams at DaveWilson.com. It's the time of the year when pumpkins might be on your mind. We're at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center uh, next to the babbling brook that you might hear. Us being me and Andy McDonald, Sacramento County Master Gardener, chef extraordinaire, with a recipe for maybe some pumpkins you might have handy. Curried pumpkin soup. That sounds good, except for the curry part. Well, no, curry's good. You just have to be easy easy with it and get the right kind. Well, tell us about that then. Okay, so for this recipe, I use, uh, I use the jarred curry paste. But when you get any kind of curry, any kind, powdered or paste, what you need to do is taste it first, determine its level of heat and your tolerance for that. Start small because you can always add... Add more, but you can't take it away. Okay, so there's nothing you could cut it with once you've done the deed. Uh, you would just have to double your soup. Does this require a special pumpkin? Okay, this is how it works. All right. The pies, the the pumpkin that are marketed for pumpkin pies to me are a bit watery, and they don't have as much of a flavor to them that, uh, say, you might get from the Libby's canned pumpkin. So I looked into this. Libby's canned pumpkin is not made with uh, the pumpkins that we think of as pump- pie pumpkins. They use something that's closer to a kabocha squash. So what I do is I use pie pumpkins for this, and I also use kabocha squash for this, and I use butternut squash. I combine the three, and I find it has a better flavor. And I've also found that to be true if you want to make a pie from scratch to use that combination. Kabocha squash, do you grow it? I don't personally, but I could. Okay, so it is <laughs> it is growable and it's a winter squash. It's a winter squash. Oh yeah, and it's and it's available at the, at the markets. It's oh. a common it's a common squash. Okay, kabocha. I need to expand my horizons. Oh, it's a wonderful flavor. <laughs> okay, what does it look like? Um it's kind of it's round but squatty and has a green exterior. 
Okay. I think I've seen it then. Mm-hmm. All right. No doubt. So back to the recipe for curried pumpkin soup. Uh, so the pumpkin then could be a pumpkin you had grown? Yes, it can. In fact, the soup that I'm serving today, I, I grew that. Well, I didn't grow the kabocha, but I grew the butternut. All right. So there's butternut squash, the kabocha, and the pumpkin. And yes. was it a canned pumpkin? No, I didn't do canned. Um, I used, I actually used a little pumpkin that I, I bought at, at the grocery store. By little pumpkin? Do you mean the minis? Uh, no, not that many. Be- <laughs> and by the way, don't ever put those in your compost. Well, tell us why. Well, because they will they will grow, and you'll have thousands of them in your in your wherever you put your compost. Okay. That's a side story. Okay, so it was marketed as a pie pumpkin, and it was probably about eight inches across, maybe. All right. So actually, that's a, a, a nice size to grow in the backyard. Yes, it is. It would be. It would be, because it wouldn't be too big. Couldn't make a jack-o'-lantern with it, but you can eat it. They just sell them as pie pumpkins. Oh, sometimes they're called sweet something or other, because anything tiny is, they use the word sweet with it. And we'll have a list in show notes of the pumpkin varieties that would be best for this recipe. Perfect. So take us through the recipe. Okay, so what I do is I start with a mirepoix, which is a fancy word for onions, carrots, and celery. Mm -hmm. And uh, those are diced up pretty small, and I saute them until they are soft. And then add some garlic and some uh, dry white wine and cook that down a little bit. And then I use, I add vegetable stock. This time I made my own vegetable stock. And for this particular soup, with the butternut squash, it has a neck that's very meaty. Then the the bulby part has seeds in it. I cut off that part, chop that up, and that goes into my stock along with the seeds for that. And so it gives it a more pumpkin-y flavor. It's more distinct. So I I do that with my stock. And I also add uh, shiitake mushrooms because it gives kind of an umaminess to it. I strain that out. I add curry paste and the pumpkin puree, which is that combination of um, of different squashes. Puree that in a blender, and uh, and then I add uh, coconut milk to it because this is a vegan dish. Then oh, and the and of course the curry paste. Cook it for about thirty minutes or so. Taste it. See if you need to add more curry or if you need to add salt and pepper, and adjust it according to your taste. Very so simple. My wife that has this inordinate hatred of coconut, for whatever reason, could I substitute almond milk? You could do that. Almond milk is a little more watery, I think. Um, oat, oat milk is a little tends to be a little bit thicker, or cashew milk. Those are a little bit thicker. And you could even omit the milk altogether. All I right. like it for the creaminess and the fact that, okay, coconut milk is high in fat, and it tends to, to cut. It, it goes well with the curry. Now, you mentioned putting the seeds in the stock of the pumpkin. At some point, do you take them out? Uh, yeah, I strain the stock, so all of it. Because okay. I also don't peel I, I don't peel that part of the butternut squash that goes in there, and you wouldn't want to eat that. So, no, I, I, I strain the stock so it's just liquid. We're talking cooking basics here. <laughs> yeah, we are. <laughs> and then, but I do, I do garnish the soup with toasted pumpkin seeds that, of course, have been shelled and, uh, and chopped parsley. What is your recipe for toasted pumpkin seeds? Oh, very simple. I just, okay, I buy the pumpkin seeds already hulled and 
because it would be very tedious to try to do that myself. And then I just, I just pop them in the oven for like a 350 degree oven for five to 10 minutes. You check them a lot because they can burn really fast. That's all you need to do. Do you need to put parchment paper on a cookie sheet to do that? You can do that, but I don't always do that. Okay. So check them to make sure they don't burn. Yes, because they will burn in a heartbeat. So like five minutes max? Uh, I check them after five minutes. Sometimes they need to go a little bit longer. Shake the shake the pan around. You can also do them on top of the stove, like in a dry skillet. But again, just keep your eye on it and keep them keep the nuts moving if you do it on top of the stove. So the biggest warning with this recipe is taste the curry first. Yes, I think so. And and start small because, like I said, you can always add more. Mm-hmm. All right, it's curried pumpkin soup. We'll have the recipe in today's show notes. Uh, curried pumpkin soup from master gardener and chef extraordinaire andy mcdonald thank you so much you're welcome thank you you may have just listened to master gardener and professional chef andy mcdonald give us her recipe for a warming hearty meal curried pumpkin soup and by the way it is very tasty but who had time to scribble down all those ingredients and instructions in that recipe while listening not me probably not you Originally, my thinking was, well, okay, I'll just post the recipe in the show notes in episode 237 of the Garden Basics podcast. But, oh, no, the podcast uploading company said there isn't enough room to do that. Besides, uh, some podcasting apps that you get the show on, they won't run the show notes or they do their own truncating. So for those of you interested in that curried pumpkin soup recipe and to hear Andy McDonald describe it all again, You can find it in the current Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter, which is out now. And there's also a picture of the soup. Wait a minute, wasn't that the title of a Talking Heads album? Oh, never mind. You can read the recipe or subscribe to the free Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter in today's show notes. Or visit our website, GardenBasics.net, where you can sign up to have the free Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter and podcast delivered to your inbox each Friday. For current newsletter subscribers, look for the curried pumpkin soup recipe in the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter. It's in your email. Take a deeper dive into gardening and eat what you grow with the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter. And it's free. Find the link. Did I tell you it's free? It's free. Find the link in today's show notes or at GardenBasics.net. Thank you for listening to the rant of an old man. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast comes out once a week on Fridays. Plus, the newsletter podcast that comes with the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter continues, and that will also be released on Fridays. Both are free, and they're brought to you by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. The Garden Basics podcast is available wherever podcasts are handed out, and that includes our homepage, GardenBasics.net. And that's where you can also sign up for the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter and podcast. That's GardenBasics.net. Basics.net, or you can use the links in today's show notes. And thank you so much for listening.